Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is that time. Sit next to your radio, grab your Ovaltine, and turn that radio dial up to 11. It is Game Dev Unchained, the podcast. This is Larry Charles, and of course, he asked politely. His mom said he could come and spend the night. So, Mr. Brandon Pham. Hey, welcome to this week's episode. This is Brandon Pham. Please welcome this week's special guest, Chris Ramo. Hey. Yay. Thanks you for having me, guys. I'm doing well. How about you? Uh, we're good, dude. Um, thank you for coming. Thanks for agreeing and spending the time with us. You know, giving yeah, us an hour thing. is a huge commitment these days, and uh, especially yeah. after the success of you know your your most released title. So yeah. I, I feel a little privileged. I must say, I feel privileged. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Yeah, it's glad, good to be here. Uh, sweet, yeah, man. thanks for uh, taking a break from your wave of success, joining us. <laughs> I was sitting couch. around watching girls with my wife, so it's. <laughs> it's that's literally what I was doing. I actually was on my couch. That's what I was doing. Yeah, so. dude. You yeah. seem like the type of person who would say, I won't forget the little people. And here's the proof because we're, we're definitely the little people. Uh, I have no comment about that <laughs> veracity of that statement. Uh, so we always like to start by building up a little rapport with the guests and then introducing them to the audience. So if you, would, if you wouldn't mind, let's go through your career. Uh, as we looked you up and uh, kind of read about you. A lot of work at some major storytellers, you know, uh, Double Fine, Irrational Games, and then also working uh, on Gone Home and working over there with a uh, Fulbright company. Uh, it's, is that just your, your genre? Is that your niche where, like, yes, I'm the best writer there is, so I'm going to help these companies? Or maybe you're like, hey, I can learn a lot from these places, so I'm going to go work there. Or what, what were you? Uh... No, not really either of those things. It's, it was, there's no, there was no, intentionality to it you know there was no there was no plan i i've fallen into a lot of different things Mm -hmm. over the years and it's really been that you know it's definitely been a case like i start you know i was a music major in college and i uh i didn't have any intention to to go into video game development or Mm -hmm. i didn't know anything about it um I was like, I'm going to be in a rock band, and that was my real smart idea. And that was not, that did not pan out in any way that meant anything. And so, um, you know, I ended up becoming a game journalist actually. And then yeah. I, you know, we founded this website, Idle Thumbs, and um, ended up doing that for a couple different places. And everything I've done, I've just fallen into. And and luckily, you know, I mean, with respect to like Fulbright, for instance, I didn't ever work at Fulbright, but I, you know, I did the music for Gone Home. Yeah. And Steve, who is the writer and designer of Gone Home, mm-hmm. he, uh, when you know when we founded Idle Thumbs back in the day, Steve was one of the people who just applied to write for that website. Okay, um, like I still have the email that Steve sent me in like 2004 or something, <laughs> or 2005, and he was like, "Hey guys, my name's Steve, and I really like your website, and I think I would be it would be fun to write for." And that's that's literally that is the reason I know Steve, and that's the Sounds reason. Like that Steve, yeah. A decade later, I ended up doing the music for Gone Home. Like that's that's the reason. It's not there wasn't like. I'm like, ah, I think I would be an expert at composing music for this <laughs> video game. Yeah, like, yeah. And everything I've done has been through weird, super 
long to long to you know that stuff took so many years to turn into anything mm-hmm. real but i wasn't trying to turn it into stuff that was real it was just how it ended up happening the, that's i mean that's awesome especially to hear that you formed a connection so early on and that it actually matured and grew into something yeah you know well, incredible for your career for sure my, my friend jake who you know was one of the co-founders of idle thumbs with me also back in 2004 um you know he co-founded campo Santo, which made firewatch and yeah. i've known jake for like 14 years now and for the first decade of us knowing each other um everything we did together was just kind of you know stuff we were doing for fun yeah yeah like idle thumbs the our podcast and podcast network and never made us any money and still doesn't make us any money but but you know turns out now i work with him for my day job yeah that's that's really cool yeah go figure yeah i mean you're touching on a really important point i that i feel like a lot of millennials forget they kind of pursue passion and i think the millennials are facing a big issue now where they change their jobs more often than Mm -hmm. their parents used to Mm -hmm. and i think they just feel like this kind of self-righteous uh thing where the job isn't what they want is therefore they need to keep looking for that job that fits them instead of them mm-hmm. fitting the job and one of the things that you said that really struck to me was that you, you had kind of like uh, interests but you kind of let it build upon itself and you built like these set of skills that eventually led you to where you are right now and you kind of yeah. let it work it so that's, out. That's, that's true but I, I think like I think in fairness a big part of what's happening right now is that the job market is actually changing. Like I, mm-hmm. I think that it is actually harder to stay at places for longer time for longer periods of time now, because I, I think that it's it's not just from the labor side; it's also from the employer side. Like I, I think it's hard to get the kind of loyalty from a company that may have traditionally, right. you know, been the case. Like I, I, you know, I think in a lot of cases it's, I think it, I think it goes both ways. You know, like I yeah. think. People are learning that behavior in part because uh, we we just don't live in a stable employment universe anymore. I was reading today, um, uh, I think in the Boston Globe, about how by 2020, um, some projections expect that 40% of workers in the United States will be contractors rather than full-time employees. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure some I'm sure some of that is intentional from the employee side, but I th- I think most of it probably isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I worked for years. Uh, from the point that I left college, from the point that I graduated college, uh, for about um, let me think, five years after that, I never had a full time job. I did have a full time job. I went to a job every day and worked it, but I technically wasn't a full time employee. I was a contractor mm-hmm. for for several companies in a row, which means I didn't have company health insurance. Mm-hmm. I didn't have like uh, benefit reti- uh, benefits retirement plan, all this stuff. Um, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> like it was, it was really crappy. I have like a severe spinal disorder and like, that mm-hmm. was not like great situation. And I just, I don't know what I could have done about that. You know, like yeah. I did my best. Um, and eventually I ended up in a situation where, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky since then to have full-time employment and that's mm-hmm. great. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's tough these days. I think that the, I don't have a lot of great advice to give people directly, but I think the thing that you're hitting on, which I would second, is that it's so important these days to maintain those connections and those friendships that yeah. like have, cause that's where like loyalty comes from, right? It's from people mm-hmm. who you, um, you work with and you establish a professional and personal rapport with and who trust you and understand you. Like 
speaking totally honestly, I don't think I was qualified to do the job I did on Firewatch. I mean, on, on Firewatch, I was a, you know, a designer and the audio director and the composer. And I did a bunch of, I, I did all the audio implementation and a bunch of story work. And like, I don't, it's a small team, which is why most of us ended up doing multiple jobs. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we're making a bigger game than we should have given the number of people working on it. And I don't, I don't think I was qualified to do those things. I think that because of these, like, you know, connection, uh, connections, and I'm saying connections in a very loose sense. These are friends of mine. They weren't <laughs> yeah. like you know, big, big way connections, that, right? <laughs> you know, like my but, second um, connections. Yeah, but um, th- the only reason I ended up being being given that job was because uh, um, I, because of that trust. You know, mm-hmm. more than more than the sort of qualifications on a resume. And I, I've at this point, I've done a lot of different things. You know, I've been a a journalist and a writer and a composer and a designer and a web developer. Um, and all that's pretty much all those skills I learned out of interest. The only thing I have any actual training in is, um, is music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't use music in my job for like f- five years after, co- you know, I, it was a long time before that ended up actually paying me a dime for anything and so it was all just the result of like plugging along with this stuff and, and being kind of lucky there was a great um sorry i'll wrap up in a second but i just want to throw a shout out to a to a um quick micro talk that steve gainer who, who you know we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. did at, at gdc this year where he talked about a, a related thing to this which is the idea of um not hiring the most qualified person for the job which that is obviously contextual, right? Sometimes you actually need the most qualified person for the job because you, you're, it's really coming down to it. And it's like, we need this. We're on a deadline. We need to get this thing out. But yeah. he, was talking, he was talking about how with his company, Fulbright, with Gone Home and now with the game they're working on now with Tacoma, he's kind of made a point not to necessarily hire like the best person for the job, like the most explicitly qualified person, but to try and hire people from more diverse backgrounds and qualifications who he trusts can grow into the job. And as a result of that, they now have a company that is half male, half female, which is like totally unusual in video game development as anyone who works in it would know. Um, You know, they have, uh, their company is like quite diverse in terms of like sexual orientation. Like they have a they have a really impressive team whose diversity is like not common right. in video game development. And like a lot of that is you know he he made the point like a a lot of people get passed over for jobs because they're not they don't like fit the mold of yeah, like right. most qualified person. And mm-hmm. it's like important to be able to see. I mean. I'm saying this as though that applies to me. I'm a fucking straight white guy. Like, I don't, <laughs> you know, like I don't need anyone's help in that regard, right? Like, I'm, yeah, yeah. that. But but the large, I think the larger point that is applicable to a lot of people um, is that it's really important to sort of look beyond the literal requirements and be like, you know, like what could this person or our team like bring in a in a broader sense? Yeah. And like even in my like relatively privileged position, I still think that I've I've benefited a lot from like people who I built up trust with who were able to, to take that attitude. So anyway, that's my like impossibly long winded answer. I'm going to shut up now. Well, the thing that I like about what you said is one, you, you, you underline the value of maintaining and building great networking connections, but two, that like, 
you're talking about people who have mutual respect here, right? Like you didn't necessarily bring up a relationship where it's like, Hey, I know that like, I may not be qualified for this, but you didn't coast off of that. Like you still went in there and you worked very hard and you delivered great stuff for them. You know what I mean? A lot of people that I'm seeing, like, and I'm sure both you guys know this, you haven't talked to these guys for years, right? They see one little bit of good news on your LinkedIn page and then, Oh yeah. Hey man. Hey. Oh yeah. Just trying to skate on in. I actually kind of stopped going to like game yeah. dev meetups uh, in large part because not to be like an asshole, but like you, you're a big deal can, now. No, no, no. <laughs> I stopped before. I like, I'm, I'm not even, I don't even mean that I'm totally not a big deal, but I, but I just mean that like, if you have any job at all mm-hmm. in the video game industry, very frequently, it can just be like overwhelming in terms of mm. people being like, oh, I just really think I have like great ideas and I could yeah. just like, I don't like. I don't know if you do yeah. or not, but like, yeah. I don't really believe you that you do. Like, maybe yeah. you do, but yeah. I have no reason to just assume that that's true. Yeah. Um. I don't know. That stuff is rough. Like, I don't want to be a jerk to people, but like, that stuff can be can be tough. No, hey, yeah. it is what it is. You got to be real with people because being real with them is helping them in the wrong run. I believe. You know. Yeah. You don't have to be harsh, but you can be real. You yeah. Know? I don't know. That's my two cents on it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, you touched on on a few good points there. Like, Larry and I have been in the industry for probably eight, ten years, and we've had five full time jobs or something, <laughs> which is kind of hilarious. That's how it is in it. this industry. No, yeah. it's totally just how it is. Yeah. What is your What is your guys' discipline? I'm sorry that I'm not already familiar. It's okay. I'm a level designer. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I'm an environment artist. Nice. Yeah, so we went to college together. We've been there in the industry. We worked three times together, and we That's share awesome. the same, yeah, same thought thinking as you kind of go through the industry recruiting friends uh, yeah. for future <laughs> for yeah. future projects, pretty much. Yep, for I sure. Think that's the the state of things right now. It's like even though you're going to go work for Sony, I'm keeping my eye on you because I remember, <laughs> you know, we're going to need a lead engine programmer one day, and this guy yeah. over here, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that ties yeah. back to what. Steve talks about right. And what, what's more important than getting the most qualified? I mean, yeah. once you sit in a room, especially in a very small room, oh my where god, opinions yeah. are really loud and yeah. personalities have to really get you know yeah. meld well. No, it's totally true. We have this tiny office above a wood shop, um, and it's it's really it's like a really nice office, but it is tiny, you know, tiny, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. really small. Um, uh, and I was reading something else like. I don't know, six months ago or something, maybe. I think it might have been in the New York Times. I can't recall. And it it was about a study that had been done across a, a lot of different businesses. And it basically said that the benefit that you gain from hiring a like superstar employee, like an ultra-qualified superstar employee, is actually only one-third of the negative effect mm. of hiring someone who doesn't actually fit well and is like a toxic member of your team. Wow. In other words like finding someone who actually fits well, shares a sense of sensibility is three times more valuable than getting the person who on paper is the most qualified. And that's not to say qualifications like don't have value or aren't important, mm-hmm. but like the value of those qualifications will very quickly be outstripped by the person who is just like toxic to work with and yeah. is not willing to be on the team in a like complete full way because whatever gains you get from like theoretical productivity or expertise will be like will crumble under the weight of the like dysfunction yeah. and i com- 
I completely believe that. Like I 1000% just like from experience believe that to be true. So I was just going to say without saying any names, do you have like an interesting story of a, like a, a person who like basically lived that out? Like, yep. Okay. I learned my lesson. Yeah. I, I mean, I, there was a case where a person who, there was a person who was, I don't want to say what company this was. Or yeah, like, you don't have to. You don't have to give that kind of like detail. A f- basically, wasn't fired for a long time out of essentially <laughs> fear that something bad would happen. Okay. And then when it did happen, several of us got letters with threats of violence. Whoa. Like, yeah, it was an intense day. Whoa. Yeah. So the fears were definitely made, re- like, justified. Um, well, you know what though? I'll say this: you got letters of intense violence, right? Yeah, like at least. Yeah, I'm gonna come in the office and I'm, that's like a that's, polite threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it I, was it was really an in, an intense day. Okay. I love how you phrased that. He didn't get fired for a long time. <laughs> like day one, he's like a fireball offense. That's way oh, to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I think uh, if I could share a story, the most I've had to deal with is just like racism. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, and I'm not saying this to like pity party. I just mean like, yeah, someone nah, would drop some like racist <laughs> shit and you're like, all right, this is, you're going to be somebody who's going to get fired. Like this is yeah. going to happen. I, I'm just usually in the background laughing. <laughs> yeah. We had a, 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 an elevator story one time. We were all in the elevator. It was a group of us. Brandon was there and we were sharing this office building with like other companies. So we walked by this one office and they were kind of having like a, like a little party or something. There was food like in the air. There's just beautiful aroma that was very familiar to me. And one of the people in the group was like, wow, what in the world is that smell? It's delicious. So I take a whiff and instantly I was like, oh, that's fried chicken. Like I know, like I knew it was fried chicken. So I was like, oh, that's fried chicken. Not thinking anything of it. Brandon's face turns bright red because he knows the irony of the situation. So everyone looks at Brandon's like, why is Brandon laughing? And I was like, ha, Brandon's laughing because the black guy in the group was able to instantly identify it was fried chicken. So then this guy, totally not involved in the conversation, uh, so he walks by the elevator, like not even near the elevator. He runs to the door and he's like, so next you're going to say what? You love watermelon? And then just walks off. And we're like, what? Oh, whoa. Yeah. A total third party. It's- See, I, I had enough respect to just smirk. And that was it. <laughs> right. That was all that needs right. to be said. Yeah. This guy just pops his head in like like a tune. And well, <laughs> just well there's, also, there's also like you guys have a rapport. Yes. You know yeah. each other. Yes, you have exactly. like years of trust. Yeah. Like that's that's a thing that often gets lost. I feel like in those discussions about like who gets to say what or yeah, like yeah. <laughs> why it's like unfair that this person took shit. And it's like, well, like yeah. there's context. Yeah, there's matter. a circle like, and you're outside yeah. the circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like when you're kids and you punch your best friend in the shoulder, even if you punch him hard, he may call yeah. you a dirty word, rub yeah, his yeah. shoulder, and you guys keep walking. Yeah. You do that to a stranger, it's like, hey, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, anyway. Someone's going to press charges, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and to bring it back, that's when you start your list. <laughs> people you want to work with. That's and true. People you don't. That's when you start cro- crossing off. Yeah, exactly. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good times. All right, so let me ask you this. Going into games journalism and then transitioning into game development. Now, was that a conscious choice or was that another thing that you just so happened to fall into? Um, that's a good question. Uh, so... The last the um, the last place I worked as a game journalist was Gamasutra, which you guys are probably familiar with as game developers. Uh, Gamasutra, and then Game Developer Magazine, sadly doesn't exist anymore, oh. and Game Developers Conference, and those were all you know those was all the same same company, and that was a really great great place to work. That was probably the the most like 
stable, normal job. That was the mm-hmm. only job I ever had that was in like a normal office with mm-hmm. like de- an accounting department and shit like that. You know what I mean? And it was, um, it was nice cause it was like, I could go home at a normal time and it yeah. was, it was really great. And uh, another nice thing about that job was that I, um, ended up just like learning a lot about video game development actually. And just meeting a lot of video game developers and just mm-hmm. sort of being really in touch with that side of the industry. And then by that time, sort of, but so actually by coincidence, really not by any, um, not for any particular reason, I don't think, but a number of my friend, you know, friends I'd known for a long time, like for instance, Steve Gaynor, mm-hmm. um, Jake Rodkin, people like this, who, who I'd, I'd known for years. And then, uh, other people who co-founded idle thumbs with us way back in the day, um, had just in, a- ended up also as video game developers. And so it just sort of, en- it, by that point, like, uh, I guess by coincidence, just a lot of the people I had these sort of video game related connections to, um, and my own professional life were just sort of surrounded by video game development. And, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything that doesn't like make me a game developer. I mean, it certainly didn't make me a game developer, but it just meant that like a lot of those connections I was forming were in that sphere. And I was, uh, recruited by irrational games in 2010. And, uh, as it turned out, Soon after getting there, I ended up referring Steve mm-hmm. to work there as well. So we ended up um, – that was the first case I had of one of those people I knew ended up working with them uh, directly. Um, and that that was just kind of – yeah, so I, I guess it was maybe like unconsciously – you know, subconsciously mm-hmm. intentional, but it wasn't like a plan I that, I, so. that I executed, yeah. And uh, you said 2011 you read Irrational, so is that... Uh, 20, 2010, yeah. 2010, so that's maybe the start of Infinite mm-hmm. around then? Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. it was a little, a little before Infinite was announced, yeah. Okay. Infi- okay. I mean, it had been in different... So that game had been in in some form of like pre-production since shortly after uh, Bioshock 1, mm-hmm. because right. Bioshock 2 was 2K Marin out here, mm-hmm. not, yeah. not Irrational. And so um, when, I, when I joined Irrational infinite had gone through like multiple early iterations that looked nothing like gotcha. the game that that ended up shipping yeah that game went through like drastic redevelopment that was a really <laughs> yep. interesting like yeah. first first studio to work at because it's like oh my god like the amount of resources that were able to be dedicated to just like starting this stuff over again yeah. and again um i don't i don't it's obviously i'm not i, I can't like go into details about that stuff i can't sure. remember at this point like how much of that stuff has been released i think they ended up releasing a bunch of that early concept art mm-hmm. i can't really remember anymore um but yeah that was a that was a, a, a really like interesting experience yeah uh so i, I met steve at two camera and we worked together and that's how we know oh each other. that's awesome okay cool yeah so that studio kind of had like uh was formed from uh, former rational guys yeah. mm-hmm. and they kind of carried the same mindset of elongated development time that keeps right. <laughs> changing over but and over game, and over. That game was such a tight development, or at least it seemed that way from the outside. It was a lot tighter, but yeah. there was definitely things that we started out with that was completely changed like five, eight times. Yeah. But like, I think that's part of the process and well, especially how, how they worked. But, uh, I mean, in the end it turned out great. And, yeah. uh, and you guys had some smart people there like Zach and JP and yeah. like, I, I know, JP I'm good friends with and I know some of those a bunch of those guys like not as as well but uh but man I remember always being really jealous of that studio because it always seemed like there was a level of like 
professional rapport that was yeah. really, really like tight and sort of, um, I don't know if egalitarian is the right word, but it definitely, yeah, hearing about it secondhand, it always felt to me as an outsider, as a studio that had a, uh, a very like collegiate, a collegial kind of, kind of tone, yeah. um, which like, you know, say what you will. I mean, a, a lot of good things and a lot of bad things about Irrational, obviously like a ton of insanely talented people there. I mean, definitely the highest, just like quantity of talented people I've ever mm-hmm. been surrounded with in my life for sure. But you know, it's like, it's no secret that it was also a very like intense yeah. inf- work environment. And like, there was a lot of crazy <sighs> shit going on all the time. Yeah. Um, but I, I took him and always seemed like a place where it was like, Oh, these people like get along with each other. And that seems really nice. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it started out really small. We had like, when I started, we had like 20, 30 people and it grew to maybe 80. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think half of the Fulbright team is made up to Gamer Ren guys anyways. <laughs> yeah. But like yeah. that's part of like meeting, going through the industry. And yeah, I mean, studios come and die, but it's the loyalty and the friendship that you form that, you know, might build, yeah. build your future uh, and everything. Mm-hmm. For sure. The guys in the trenches, you know, have the same badges on their jacket, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, when did the podcast come in the picture? Did that come with the the whole website being up or? No. So we founded Idle. We founded Idle Thumbs the website in two thousand four, uh, because we. I remember we kind of thought game journalism was sort of like lame. Like we never really liked the. <laughs> we, I, I mean, we were we were like, you know. 20 year old idiots um and but i just remember we thought it was very sort of hype driven and sort of self-parodying you know like and we just had all these like ideas that are a lot easier to have than to actually execute um and uh we just we formed a website that had sort of a uh like (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, so I think we actually didn't all agree on what it was, and that's why it sort of eventually collapsed, which is what happened. It was sort of there were elements of it that were satirical, and there were elements of it that were totally straight, and there were a lot of like game, like serious, in-depth game reviews, and there were a lot of sort of editorials that were kind of tongue-in-cheek, mm-hmm. um, and it was a lot of different kind of editorial voices all on the same site. There were like mm-hmm. probably ten of us, at, you know, for a while, uh, and then it because of that, it was sort of always pulled in so many different directions. And eventually, it just kind of collapsed under its own weight. And we also started getting real jobs that we had yeah. mm-hmm. took up our time and mental energy. And then, in two thousand eight, um, I was uh, working at a site called Shack News, and I had hired Nick Brecken to work under me there. And that was another case where it was like this was a guy who had published an article on Idle Thumbs a few years earlier, and he published one article. And I don't think it even ever got published on the site, actually, because <laughs> it fell prey to that the Idle Thumbs just staff disaster of like uh. twelve different people all having an opinion about how the article should be edited, and like it just I don't th- I don't remember if it even went up on the website. I think one went up, and then his second piece kind of got just like stuck in this horrible limbo. But I remembered, oh, that guy's a really good writer. He's mm-hmm. he's I remember like he's actually quite talented, mm-hmm. and I me- I hired him at Chack News, and then uh, we worked there together, and he like, he's just an amazing writer and then my friend jake who you know was one of the original co-founders of the site with me um we just were thinking okay we all have real jobs now what can we do to sort of revive idle thumbs in a way that doesn't 
require very much effort or time. <laughs> uh, like it was literally just like, oh, podcast podcasts are they were kind of a thing at the time, mm-hmm. um, and and we were like, well, we could probably do that, and we just. The three of us just sat down at my. I was in this tiny studio apartment in San Francisco, which I lived in for years because it was rent controlled. Mm, and uh, nice. and got to hold yeah, on to that, man. I know it's <laughs> like, yeah, for sure, golden handcuffs, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> and we uh, we just bought some like microphones off Amazon and set them up on my uh, just you know my table where I ate dinner and worked and stuff and. Um, just started recording a podcast and it ended up being really fun. And the funny thing about that is that we had no way at the time to know what our audience was. And I still don't know how big our audience mm. was then. Like I've literally no idea what our audience <laughs> size was at the time, but there were definitely, it was very clear. People liked it um, because we heard from some of them and we had the, like very early on listener mail became a really like important part of the show. And so we heard from people all the time and that was really exciting. Um, and we just, we just kind of did it and uh we redesigned the website we basically like destroyed we like demolished the entire website and just replaced it with like just a podcast in the middle of the front page which was crazy because the website had this entire custom cms that was uh mm. that was written like single-handedly by the by our, our friend doug tobacco who again was just like one of these dorks on the internet who we knew mm. and uh <laughs> so, again it's still someone we work with like uh. doug doug now hosts the uh, company websites for Campo Santo and Fulbright. He still administers Idle Thumbs. Still writes all the back end for it. Um, I do a lot of the front end work for that now. And Doug is like, we have an Idle Thumbs Slack thing, and Doug's just like in there. I was literally talking to Doug today about setting up a virtual uh, box to like uh, do some redesigns to the Idle Thumbs homepage. And it's like, oh yeah, this is this just like dork who we've known forever and who <laughs> like hosted our stupid website, you know. 14 years ago Dude. um shout out to doug man being behind the scenes and keeping everything going sounds like oh guy. my god yeah. doug is literally like our savior uh, actually uh you can doug is also s- savable in a video game because doug is doug in the walking dead season one uh, if, if you guys have played the walking dead season one okay. the character doug in that video game is actually our friend doug tobacco who um that character was literally based on him and they like licensed his likeness, which, you know, he just like signed a piece of paper to say it was okay. And it looks like him. And, uh, if you see a picture photograph of that guy in real life, it literally just looks like that. It's hysterical. So and, was, uh, was that a team? Was that a group doing like, Hey, let's, let's totally put Doug in the game or, well, so that was, uh, you know, Jake, my, my friend who, you know, was, original idle thumbs founder he worked at telltale with sean vanneman mm-hmm. uh who is the those two guys were the co-leads of the walking dead season one and doug was doug got a job as a web admin at telltale um again like once again through knowing jake <laughs> and all these like connections and um and they just they were like well we we want a character you know like because sean was the writer on that game and then uh i guess he wanted a character who was sort of a you know like web admin style like sort of person who would have technical knowledge mm-hmm. of some kind to like sort of be the the counter to the carly i guess the uh, female character uh in the same part of the game and they were like well that's kind of a doug. like what's a doug we're basically like talking about a doug why don't we just make it doug and <laughs> that that character in the game had the t-shirt 
on that character model, like the t-shirt texture, is this like barrel-lope um, uh, thing that is actually this t-shirt Doug wears all the time. And if you know <laughs> Doug personally, it's like the weirdest thing. Uh, anyway, that's just a, that's cool. That's, 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 that's the awesome. guy who still hosts all of our websites and does all that shit. And is like the nicest guy and a total lifesaver all the time. And you totally let the zombies get him half the time. Like, yeah, I don't feel like way more than Doug. half the time. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> Doug is like Doug is like twenty percent saved. So I always tell people to save Doug. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So but that's where the podcast was. Just so we decided to do right. the podcast. So that's the answer. So you did the podcast for a while. Some yeah. people liked it, and some more people started to like it. When was mm-hmm. it? Uh, I uh, from what I read, you guys started to uh, do a Kickstarter. For- yeah. Well, the Kickstarter. So the, we had to stop doing the podcast when I. Uh, left to go to uh, Irrational mm-hmm. because I, mo- I moved to Boston for that job. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to San Francisco, it was like, man, it would be fun to do Idle Thumbs again. Like, honestly, uh, one of the reasons I moved back to San Francisco um, was because I really missed doing that. And it felt like a really important thing that I had done. I- honestly speaking, Idle Thumbs is kind of the thing I'm most proud of mm-hmm. in my career, which is, you know, kind of weird, I guess, because it's definitely not the thing most people have like played or seen or anything, but it's definitely the thing that is, I think is the most important, like personal individual thing that I've done just in the sense that I, I frequently hear not frequently like every day, but I definitely not infrequently hear from people who say things like, Oh man, I started listening to this podcast when I was in like high school and now I'm an adult person who has graduated from college yeah. And I'm just like an adult living in the world. And this podcast like really informed the way that I think about a lot of things, like not just games. And when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, holy shit. Like that yeah. is actually the craziest thing, mm-hmm. especially when I think about the earliest episodes of our podcast. And, you know, we were in our early 20s and uh, there are definitely like moments of sort of things that were said on that podcast that. I would not stand by now. And I feel like people who have been listening to that thing for a decade can recognize sort of how Mm -hmm. we've grown as people. And my hope is that there are some people who have also learned from that, not because we're sort of didactic or moralizing, but because um, of just sort of the evidence of growth and um, kind of uh, maturity, I suppose. I mean, it's still a stupid fucking podcast. I mean, it's still like (laughs) we still talk about dumb garbage all the time. Um, but I, but I hope that there's like a sensibility that is, um, meaningful and enriching in some way to people. And sometimes I, I, he- I hear evidence of that and it's like very gratifying to me. And so when I came back from Boston, it was like, well, we should, we should do this. Nick at the time was working at Bethesda. Nick had gotten hired to work at Bethesda in Maryland. And, um, so uh, Sean Vanneman, who I mentioned, had been a guest host on uh, a bunch of the podcasts before I left for Boston. So when I came back, we said, okay, well, uh, Jake and Sean and I are going to kickstart this thing because when we used to do the podcast, it was in my tiny studio and we sort of just did it after work and we said, okay, well, that was great, but it basically cost us money and didn't earn us any money mm-hmm. and cost us tons of time. And like that part's fine, but it can't just only be a resource drain forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be nice if we could actually try and determine, is this something that like maybe could at least pay for itself, even if it doesn't pay us 
like an income. Mm -hmm. And so we said, well, Kickstarter, again, Kickstarter was like kind of a thing at the time. Mm -hmm. Although what's funny is that when we started it, uh, there weren't big high profile game Kickstarters. Uh, We were taken by surprise. We were actually days away from launching our podcast. And that's when the double fine podcast, I'm sorry, double fine Kickstarter launched. Gotcha. If you guys remember what that was like oh, yeah. Yeah. when the double fine Kickstarter, that was like the first big it's game Kickstarter, Kickstarter and actually one of the first big anything Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. And we, we didn't, we were like, what the hell? <laughs> what? Like what we basically thought we were screwed. Cause we were yeah. like, we were right about to launch ours, which we spent months making. Like we spent Damn. months and months making this Kickstarter and like, we're just doing so, we did so much we way overshot on rewards because we were so worried no one would want to contribute to it um, to the point where we commissioned an original game from Brendan Chung who's mm. Blendo Games who made uh, Gravity Bone and Adam Zombie Smasher and uh, Flotilla all of which we loved we're huge fans of that guy's game that we basically commissioned a game from him as a kickstarter reward which was 30 flights of loving which which i ended up doing the music for um but that's that's how insecure we were about our <laughs> our kickstarter prospects um was that we like made a video game to put into it to try and incentivize people to donate to our podcast uh and um i mean when i say commissioned i mean we like promised him a cut of the kickstarter later we didn't <laughs> have money up front to fund to fund a video game. Oh, but, you're uh, one of those guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um uh oh fun fact about that by the way. Um we didn't actually even though we paid for the development of that video game, it didn't occur to us to ask for like a percentage of sales. Mm-hmm. Um so we basically published a video game for free. <laughs> it was a really dumb business move. We're like, we're like the most unsophisticated people ever. It was really embarrassing in retrospect. Uh anyway, so we launched we like this double fine Kickstarter launched right when we were about to launch ours. And we're like, Oh my God, this sucks. As it ended up turning out, that was probably a benefit to us because it introduced people to the concept of Kickstarter. Um, and so that ended up, we ended up getting a lot more money than we asked for, which was really surprising. Um, not as much as double fine did, but, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) but you know, uh, enough that we could actually rent an office, which was really exciting. We rented a, a studio space, um, and you know, bought a computer to put in it and like had a real place to record the podcast that was not in my kitchen um so that was really cool that was like one of the most weird and exciting and like stress inducing periods in my entire life probably mm-hmm. right um yeah so quick random question what was the wait like when you know like yay we hit our goal but we still have like 22 days to wait before we get this money we had our goal in under an hour yeah so like <laughs> yeah it was nuts we okay Here's like, yeah, it was crazy. We were so smart. Like, I don't say that often because I don't think that I, I or we usually are. But uh, in this case, we did a thing that I'm so proud of that I don't mind congratulating myself for because I'm like so pleased as punch about it to this day. We preceded our Kickstarter campaign with a bunch of our community members. Like, we gave them a private link to view the preview version of it ahead of time. And we basically we contacted them first and said, we want to send you something, but we're not going to tell you what it is until you like absolutely promise us. You're not going to tell anyone about this or share anything about it. Like we really need your assurance about this. Mm-hmm. Okay. They say, yes. Okay, great. We send it back. Um, please give us your feedback. Like please right now act as though you are actually 
going to put money, like literally putting money down right this second, mm-hmm. how much would you give us based on this example campaign that we've laid out um, and why? And why would you not give more, uh, basically? And we essentially play tested our Kickstarter campaign mm-hmm. um, the way that you play test a video game. And, um, and it was amazing. And we totally, we did several iterations on our, um, it had two really positive effects, one of which it uh, had, uh, we reevaluated our, our uh, uh, backing levels and tiers and sort of wording and all those things that you don't think about, you know, in the same way that game design, like so much of the job of game design is imagining what your player, how your players are going to react to mm-hmm. things and trying to put yourself in that position and try to wipe your brain of all the knowledge you already have because you actually made it up and you have to remember, nope, the people playing this have no idea about anything that I'm attending. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other positive effect was that these people actually knew our Kickstarter was going to launch. The second it launched, they all just went and mm-hmm. pledged, pledged their money. Um, and so the rest of the month was just like basically <laughs> no sleep. It was just, I mean, it was super exciting because we ended up raising like several times our goal, but it was also that did not make it less stressful. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So the yeah. four, four play worked and <laughs> <laughs> when it was time to hit the button, everyone was, was excited. I, I mean, this was this podcast, you know, about game development. And so I feel like game development, game design in particular kind of teaches you to be better at a lot of things right. because one of the most important things you have to do just in life, I think, and no one's perfect at this. I'm certainly not. And I mean, you know, but it's like anticipating how people will interpret something that you said or did, right. you know, like trying to understand things from other people's perspectives and being like, Oh, if someone reacted poorly to this, like maybe they're wrong, maybe I'm wrong, but like, that's kind of irrelevant it's not entirely irrelevant, but sort of what's more important is me understanding why they feel that way and why they did that. And Mm -hmm. I feel like applying that mentality to just things in your life is one of the most valuable things I've learned as a result of being in the games industry and doing that Kickstarter thing. I remember feeling like, Oh wow, this is a really quick return example of why that is so valuable. You know, not just like not assuming things and not assuming things about people's motives or, 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 you know, like it's easy to forget that because the internet kind of operates in the opposite way or like social media, for instance, operates like exactly counter to that. It's like a, the the nature of things like Twitter and, and Facebook. And I love Twitter and I use it every day, but it really rewards not mm. doing that exercise. Like it really, <laughs> you know, rewards like super quick reactions and like jumping to conclusions and sort mm. of um, group self-congratulation. Um, but it's like so. I think it's just so important to try and re- resist that urge, just like as a human being. Um, and I feel like that's weirdly just like a really important part of game design. And that was what we tried to do in that Kickstarter. And obviously, our goal in that Kickstarter was just like fun to video game podcast. It wasn't really like a noble end, but you know, but it was what we were doing at the time. So now, is there? I mean, we talked about something that you did great, and you obviously should congratulate yourself for that. That's an epic move. Uh, was there one thing that you can say, like, ah, you know what, Larry, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't have offered uh, to bake everyone a pie because we had to make oh, 10,000 pies. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of things, like most of the things. Um, <laughs> no T-shirts, I- no autographs. Oh, you mean in the Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, just in the Kickstarter. Oh, oh, I thought but, you meant just like in my career. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, take me back. Like, oh, Larry. I'm just like, oh my God. So we got many. a time limit, Chris. No. Let me get some coffee. <laughs> yeah, that would be 
a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, the Kickstarter went pretty well for the most part. I would say that the biggest, mis- uh, two big mistakes, one of which was like overcomplicating the rewards. Like in, mm-hmm. that was kind of a success and a failure. I would say that it was a success in that we made a lot of really cool stuff that I'm individually proud of. Like I'm really proud of the specific rewards that we sent because most of them were actual physical goods that I think we designed and manufactured to a high level of quality. Mm-hmm. But it was also kind of confusing and overwhelming to some degree. Uh, I think we kind of forgot a little bit that the actual point of the campaign was the podcast. Mm-hmm. And like realistically, a lot of the people who are contributing were not contributing to like get a bunch of arbitrary rewards. They're contributing because they cared about the podcast we made. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that like hurt us very much, but it basically meant I mean, it did, it did hurt us in the sense that um, it took us like a year to fulfill all those rewards. You right. know, like we blew past most of our mm. self-described deadlines, and that was a bummer. Like I felt really bad about that for a long time. Mm. And there are a couple things that never actually went out. Like, <laughs> and they were they they were kind of weird, esoteric, small things. They weren't all the physical goods went out. Anything that was like a tangible manufactured good that we promised, all of that stuff went out for sure. And so that's that's good. But there were like weird just like benefit things that ended up being logistically complex and didn't end up working out. And then there were just uh, almost everything went out late, like almost Mm -hmm. nothing went out on time. And so that was a bummer. And I think that we just like, we're, we let our insecurity about success make us kind of just like over promise, you know, sort of irresponsible way. And we lucked out that we made, a multiplier on our goal because if we had hit our goal exactly we yeah. actually probably would have been in the red yeah, like right. if we had if we had hit our exact kickstarter goal it would have cost us more to manufacture all the rewards at the level of quality <laughs> one we wanted to do than we would have made once we factored in um taxes um the payment processor fees the kickstarter fees all that stuff that you don't think about the shipping. Oh my God. Shipping is so expensive. We learned <laughs> yeah. like at the time Kickstarter didn't have an international shipping option. You had to right. just give Oof. charge the same amount of shipping for everyone, no matter what it was. Yeah. And so you, you had to basically pick an amount that was going to be an average because you didn't want to piss off the people living in the United States with like unreasonably high shipping to make right. up for the people living in like Norway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was expensive. Um, those were those were those were pretty big mistakes that we were lucky didn't like ruin the whole thing, uh, you know. But they could have if it turned out a little differently. And that I remember. This isn't really relevant anymore at the time because I feel like Kickstarter is sort of just like it's kind of been figured out by now. But I remember at the time it totally wasn't figured out, and I remember every time. Like we we went through a little period of time where we were like big shots with Kickstarter because there weren't that many successful Kickstarters. Now there have been like a million successful Kickstarters, so mm-hmm. ours is like nothing special at all. But there was like this you know period of of a little time back in 2012 when the, we we were like one of the success stories, and I remember p- people asking for advice, and it was always just like, oh my god, don't overpromise, and like shipping is the worst. Yeah. shipping is awful. Like that's my advice. <laughs> like, yeah, don't yeah, ship yeah, anything yeah. Like, ever. <laughs> Awesome, man. So 2012 is around when you started the Kickstart, and you took a break while uh, you relaunched Idle Thumbs, the podcast. Like, how many years was it before you came back with uh, the Kickstarter? Um, it was about two years before two the years. Kickstarter, yeah. It was about two okay. years break, yeah. 
So and it's, yeah. since then, we've been pretty much every week. We've almost not missed a week. That's awesome. I mean, like the biggest thing, like Larry and I are discovering, we're pretty new to this podcasting game. It is kind of like an audio biography, kind of where you were, and it's mm-hmm. kind of chronological, you know, kind of time capsule chronologically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I, I think like. 20 years from now, I'm going to come back to listen to like Game Dev Unchained number episode like five and be like, holy it's crap. Weird, it's a weird feeling. I don't yeah. recommend it. <laughs> I mean, you guys are, it's probably not going to be the same because you guys started this as like fully grown adults, but it's mm. weird to listen to stuff you did when you were like 20 years old. Yeah, I but can't believe nice. what they did in Crash Bandicoot 2. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. I've got a, uh, just a random funny question for you. When are you getting the band back together? I don't know what that means. Oh, it's uh, music. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. When are you getting the band oh, back God. together? Um, <laughs> that, yeah, that, that like, so didn't go anywhere. The funny thing is, <laughs> the funny thing is I, I had better band experiences in high school than I did in college and out of college. And that was the reason I became a music major because mm-hmm. I, I just loved um, – I, I just had – I was um, – I just – for whatever reason, I just really – I lucked out in high school in a way that I think a lot of people don't. Um, I had a lot of shitty experiences in high school for sure, <laughs> largely around the fact that, again, as I said, I had like a crazy spinal disorder and like mm. I had a lot of surgery at the time and definitely a lot of things that were like teenagers are not yeah. like sensitive or empathetic about, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. so that, that part sucked in high school a lot. But like, but I also was really lucky in that I had um, people who I related to musically a lot and we played shows together and like recorded really awful albums that I would never want to listen, like literally never want to listen to again now because it would be so embarrassing. But that was such like a formative fun experience for me that that was the reason Mm -hmm. I majored in music in, in college, which was sort of an arbitrary decision. Um, and I never really had that again. You know, I didn't really ever quite have that same experience again as I did in high school. Um, so yeah, go figure. Being a musician in college, having real bills to pay. <laughs> that's, yeah, probably when, <laughs> that's probably when it didn't become funny. Yeah. Anymore. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is I didn't really like make that connection at the time, but now looking back, I worked in the, um, in the, uh, like the, I lived in the dorms, uh, in co- I went to UC Berkeley and I, I worked in the, uh, cafeteria mm-hmm. in our dorm, just like in the, the residential unit where I worked. And that was like a, I mean like that, it's a job. It's like a, just a job ass job. You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> job um, ass job. <laughs> yeah. And before I, before that I worked in a supermarket, I worked in Vons, um, which is the same thing as Safeway. And then after that I worked in a video game store, I worked in a game crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the job that I was working when I was in college was, um, was just like literally like scraping food off of plates. And it's, and like realistically, if I think now, like looking back, probably if I had, um, seriously, like stuck with trying to do the band thing for longer, I probably would have just been working a really dumb job. <laughs> um, and, and the the band, th- like the band thing, is a trap. I think mm-hmm. it's not a trap for everyone. Like I think that if so, if you're like legitimately gifted in that regard, you should do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I was not. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just sort of like deluded myself into thinking that I was. Um, you know, so. The band probably not getting back together. <laughs> Short answer, no. <laughs> yeah. I'll go put my tour T-shirt back in the trunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, uh, the good thing about music is it led you to video game opportunities and you're, you know, composing score for games with your friends now. That's got to be an awesome experience. You know, uh, well, yeah. when you started your podcast or when you were like early in your career, did you did you even think or grasp that you would have these opportunities that you have today? No, I, I mean, I wouldn't even have known where to begin in thinking that. Like, yeah. that's what's very, you know, I said a while ago on the podcast that I kind of stopped going to um, video game dev meetups and uh part of so part of it is kind of just the like sameness of a lot of the sort of like aspiring people you run into which again i don't mean as like a slam but just you know there's a lot of people who have like a very similar background and like vibe Mm -hmm. going on and it kind of bummed me out because um i would people would ask like, oh how did you get into this how like do you have any advice for me and it's yeah. like well i i think it is totally valuable and appropriate that probably most people working in the video games industry have like wanted to do it their whole life and that's their like passion and dream and i think that's mm-hmm. totally great and i don't want to like cast aspersions on that whatsoever but i but i also don't think that that should be the only people who work in the video game industry mm-hmm. um like I think it's really interesting and valuable to have for the field to have people who come from all kinds of backgrounds and expectations and um, like who come into it from different things. Like if you look at uh, you guys know Clint Hawking, the uh, he was the designer of um, he joined the development of the original Splinter Cell as a level designer and right. through just like a series of crazy shuffles ended up being the creative director on that game by the time it shipped, which is like totally insane (laughs) and probably could never happen now. I don't think that like that. I don't think that could happen now in the same way because that was his first job in the industry. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, And then after that, he was the creative director on Far Cry 2, which is like a sort of all time favorite Idle Thumbs game. Like we Mm -hmm. were like notorious for talking about Far Cry 2 all the time. Uh, And for like all kinds of reasons, I think it's a very interesting fascinating game but anyway the reason i bring up clint hawking is because he uh actually did he actually was a musician he he was a punk musician mm-hmm. and played in punk bands um for years and when he he eventually became a level designer working at ubisoft uh which one montreal i guess and mm-hmm. um and i think it's really fascinating that that is where he came from and i suspect that informs his his sort of like ethos a lot and he i like i like that it's like at least theoretically possible probably not that common but like theoretically possible for someone to end up in that role who didn't come through just like the same typical channels and my hope Mm -hmm. would be that going like just in the future in total that kind of experience is just like broadened out to even more broader experiences and backgrounds and demographics. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the reason I was saying this is because when you said, oh, did you ever imagine yourself doing this stuff? Um, I, I didn't really, but I think that that's like totally okay. Mm-hmm. Like I'm totally fine with the fact that I just sort of like stumbled into this and um, that it, it means that there are certain jobs I could never do, right? Like it means mm. I could never be an engineer because to be that you have to, you actually do kind of have to like yeah. really have been doing it for like that's like one of those sort of things where it's like okay, this is incredibly specialized <laughs> knowledge. And, like, yeah. There are some of, prerequisites. There's yeah. like an ex, there's like an expiration date, yeah, yeah. you know, on that. Like if you haven't 
started that by a certain point, like probably you're you're at a severe disadvantage. But there are some fields, and I would say design is one of them, um, and, and I would say music is one of them as well. That like you can be you can have a musical aptitude, but not be like a video game composer mm-hmm. and yeah. end up writing music for video games because you have a sensibility that meshes, yeah. you know. Uh, and same with design. Um, like I don't I don't know you know Larry like you're perspective on design or your like beliefs about this stuff but you know game design is like a very subjective oh yes field. for sure you know i mean it's a different thing at every studio practically and not only that but it's often a different thing from game to game um people mean very different things when they talk about game designers and i think especially in disciplines like design it's really important to be receptive to people coming from like all different kinds of backgrounds because mm-hmm. game design is basically experience design and it's like if you have different experiences feeding into that, you're probably going to have a more interesting, like more varied and robust um, design sort of like foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and again, I'm going on way too long, so I have to figure out a way to wrap this up and make this be a real answer. Um, but no, I, I couldn't imagine having done any of this stuff. Uh, and I still don't really know what it is I do entirely. Um, but I, you know, I like having done a bunch of different things, and um, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's it. Yeah, yeah, there's you know, that's that's actually beautiful that you are <laughs> advocating for. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I just thought of something that was kind of relevant. So there was a really great talk at I think last year's GDC by um, Amy Hennig, who was the creative director on. Uncharted, right? Uncharted games, yeah. yeah. Now she's working on a big Star Wars game. And she talked about... Um, she was speaking at the the One Reason to Be panel, which was the panel that dealt with uh, women in games and sort of the challenges women in games face. And hers was really interesting because um, all, the, all the other talks in this panel were about like the really legitimate and like extremely frustrating... Um, challenges that women have to deal with in games that we're, you know, we're all aware with if we work in video games, it's very, very well known. Hers was interesting because she talked about, um, kind of not having those experiences, mm-hmm. um, which isn't to suggest that those experiences aren't like real and problems, but she talked about coming up through this very traditional kind of, um, like entry level work up sort of environment at EA, which was this large institutional company but they actually because they're a large institutional company they have things like hr departments and like Mm -hmm. people who have like chain of command and like people who have this like sense of respect you know for the hierarchy um and it was it was a really really interesting talk and the thing it made me think about kind of was like so i were i work in indie and i most of my uh well, you know, before this, I worked at Double Fine, and Double Fine's kind of like a half in, you know, indie, you know, like it's double indep- A. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like an independent studio, but it's like larger than most indie studios, but definitely not as uh, does not have the money that a publisher has, for instance. Um, so, you know, so I've kind of done, I guess, AAA and that kind of like pseudo indie, and then like full on indie, um, and I, th- I think there are a lot of great things about. Um, indie development sort of ascending and a bigger chunk of the industry being indie. But I think a potential danger of it is that it removes entry level positions. Mm. Like 
when you and, and that is the entry level positions are where people um, can come up from like non default paths. Mm-hmm. Um, like very frequently, indie has a weird um, paradox where it's like indie theoretically is like um, you'd one would hope and expect it to be more like diverse and open minded and welcoming. But the flip side is indies are frequently underfunded, like working under the gun, mm-hmm. like basically just getting by. And so very frequently indies end up being actually kind of the places where the most obvious people yeah. and the least diversity ends up actually making a living because it's like, we just need shit out the door. Now mm-hmm. we don't have time to like take a risk. And that's why the Steve's talk that I talked about earlier was like, I think so impressive and, and valuable. But the thing that when, when you have fewer entry level positions at larger organizations that can actually foster talent from the bottom up, um, it actually removes avenues Mm-hmm. for people from broader levels of experience yeah. to come in because there are, you know, large teams with entry level positions, like they have room to have like redundancy, mm-hmm. you know, because they know that like, okay, this all kind of funnels up and it, you know, like you don't need to worry if this like one like junior designer or something is like totally justifying every single penny we're spending on them every single day because this entire organization is not going to make rent if that like we don't, you know like next yeah. month like that's not as much yeah, of a yeah. thing in those large companies like people often give large companies like that shit for kind of having inefficiencies and so on and that's that can be true and it can be frustrating working inside it to like see the waste and the sort of bureaucracy and stuff but the flip side is you've got hr departments and you mm-hmm. have like mm-hmm. junior positions that people can grow up out of and like you know working at irrational there were qa people who ended up becoming designers and producers on Bioshock infinite. it's like, that is crazy. These are, these people started out as like part-time base hires with essentially zero experience. And like now they're, you know, legitimate, like full on dev team members. And that just, that is only really possible in a institutional environment that actually has those um, pathways. Yeah. I mean, Larry and I mostly, came from the other end of the spectrum with AAA development and we've been in places where yeah I mean it's great to have a, an organization that doesn't have to make rent every month that that has wiggle room for just entry levels to train up and get used to the industry and eventually maybe keep going that down that path or just go off on their own and do indie stuff like it's definitely I feel AAA is there uh and it's a necessary evil I say evil because that's from my uh, I know user you, I, experience. I, I, I totally know what you mean. It's a do- it's yeah. It yeah. is both of them. It's both of those things for sure. Yeah. yeah. And like they don't mind the redundancy, but the redundancy is there. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it is also a reason why burnout rates I think happen no, a lot know, more I, than triple A. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. Than yeah. Indie. Uh, yeah. but I think it's uh, one of those things. Burnout's that a problem like, throughout though. Burnout is like I mean, I think burnout is a big deal in indie as well. You just don't hear about it as much because the burnout comes from the studios that don't right. become huge successes. Yeah, like right. the thing that's easy to forget about indie is that the vast majority of, of them just fail. Yeah. Like, no the indies that you've heard of are the ones that actually succeed. But like most of them, people quit their jobs to go indie and then literally just fail entirely um, yeah. just because that's how it goes. Like that's right. what entrepreneurship is. And it's like crazy and terrifying 
so this kind of leads into uh, into Camposanto, uh, mm-hmm. into Firewatch. So how big is the Firewatch team? What it started out with and what it ended up. Um, so we have, uh, I think right now about six people in the office and then another like three people remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of changing right now, like a little bit in both directions because uh, the project's over and like you know some people are moving on and you know uh, like our gameplay programmer will got a job at unity which is pretty awesome oh, nice. um, so he's basically going from like working on a unity game to working on unity itself, itself. yeah yeah um, which is pretty cool so you know this stuff is sort of changing a little bit so we have like 10 ish people total um uh at this point and I'll, we're not we're not looking to like get bigger yeah yeah I will say one thing, and I guess uh, that I'm hoping will come from Will's hire at Unity is when they have a developer who's made a full project, you know, in Unity in their engine. I'm sure there was gripes, or I'm sure there was duct tape things oh that he God. did. To okay. you know what I mean? So like, obviously, so, he's going to so. go to Unity. Like, bam! <laughs> this is yeah. what we need to fix. No, he actually before he left, he was like, uh, "All right, all right, guys, like, give me your your list, <laughs> your list of like low hanging fruit." He's yeah, like, yeah. not not like big like re-engineering the whole thing requests, but like yeah. what's, what are the things that you reasonably mm-hmm. see getting fixed and I'll do my yeah. best. And so that was pretty cool. Yeah, and he helps everybody, even though he helps yeah. himself at the same time. That's, that's exactly. actually, no, we, I, yeah. we still benefit from that. For exactly. Sure. That's cool, man. Yeah. Well, I personally want to know uh, if you can say any of this is like, what are you excited about in the future for, you know, like the immediate future for your game development career? Without breaking any spoilers or NDAs, you know, is there anything like, you know what, Larry? This. I want to get my Vive and I want to play my VR games. Like, what are you looking forward yeah. to? I mean, there's no, there's no, there's nothing to spoil and there are no NDAs to break because we have literally no idea what we're doing next. Um, like, that's not like a euphemism. Like, we actually yeah. have to have not figured it out yet. So, so I have no idea. I honestly don't know. Um, uh, I really don't know. I, I would like to have slightly fewer roles mm-hmm. on the next project than I did on, on this one. Um, so you did design, you did writing, and you did sound implementation and score, right? Uh, right, yeah. Uh, and web development. Oh, yeah, not, that's right. It's not a game job, but it's still time-consuming. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, some of those less than others, like writing in my case just meant I was on the story team. I didn't write the dialogue itself. Mm. That was all Sean. Sean wrote like 98% of the words in the game, but I was on the story team, which meant um, there were basically three of us who like figured out the narrative for the game and like how it all slotted into the design and this and that. And then um, design and implementation, uh, uh, which is like taking all of, in the case of our game, again, this is one of those things that's literally different on every single game, but in our game was like, all the branching dialogue and yeah. like the sort of flow of um, items and ungating the world and like all that stuff. I did a bunch of that stuff. Um, and then, yeah, the audio implementation and, uh, and music. Um, but I would probably like to do less of the audio implementation stuff just mm-hmm. because I know that there are people who could do that a lot better. Mm-hmm. Like I'd never done that before. This was the first time I'd ever done that on a game. And I think I did a okay job, but I think you could probably find someone who, could like really sure. you know just like nail it i think yeah. you need to go back to steve's speech and uh, <laughs> being you're, very humble right you're now, the right I mean. man well <laughs> yeah. no i mean i think i'm just realistic like i uh, did it you know like i i think i did it um 
I don't think I've failed, yeah. certainly. But um, like I'm not I'm not falsely modest about it. Like I I think I did a totally fine job. But I just think that you know, mm. if I had to pick something, if I if I had to pick a subset of the things I did to do again, that would probably be one I would hope to, mm. like maybe shed just because, you know, that's it was a lot of different things mm. to do, and I would like to be able to um, own a little bit more, like do fewer total things so that I can own more of the smaller number. Gotcha. That makes, that, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, no, Brandon, go ahead. Get him. Get him. All right. <laughs> so, uh, it took you guys about two years to make the game, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, so we, you were mentioning before the burnout eight stuff with the indie development. Uh, it happens. It's just that you never heard of them and that's why <laughs> they just fizzle out into disappearance. So mm-hmm. the biggest thing that an indie studio usually gets into trouble is when they start doing press and marketing and telling people that they made such an awesome game. When did you guys start thinking about your marketing campaign for the game for it to eventually get to the Oh. Season? Um earlier than we earlier than we planned, we actually ended up announcing the game like 3 months into development, mm. which was totally not the original plan because um we we actually had to like hire a couple roles that we hadn't been able to fill like behind the scenes. Right. We had to actually just like put out you know a job at like one ad, um, and to do that we kind of needed to actually have something to say. So that kind of ended up driving the timing of the original game announcement. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put out a trailer. We made a trailer, and uh, you guys have probably had had experiences like this or been on teams where this happened, but like making that trailer was basically just making fake game. Like it was like, yeah. Oh, we have to just like, ins- we have to not ship the game for a while because instead we're shipping this trailer. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not, it's not like cutting it from the game and just being like, great. It's like, Oh, we have to like write and design a video game trailer. Yeah. So that, so like, you know, so that, uh, we just kind of tried to do our best to make it good. And I, that sounds really glib and stupid, but I, but I, a lot of video game trailers are actually just not good mm-hmm. um and i don't th- like i kind of think that's because game developers often just like don't care about that stuff right. um it's it's one thing if you're like at a big publisher and you have a team of people whose actual job it is to care about that stuff because that's their life that's like their profession but i think a lot of developers at a smaller scale kind of frequently uh, i've encountered this a lot and it's like i understand where it comes from but it's like this attitude of like well the I just care about the game development and like all this mm-hmm. marketing stuff is like bullshit and it's like business stuff is like whatever. And like, I just care about making the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that's, you can't, you can't afford that anymore. Like you really can't. There's too many people out there making totally amazing things. Like you have to, if you're going to put a trailer out, it has to be just as good as everything else you're making because otherwise people won't know that the thing you're making is good. Like mm-hmm. if the thing you, if the trailer you put out is kind of just like boring or not very interesting or not as interesting as your actual game is, how are, why are people going to assume your game is yeah. cool and interesting and polished and good? Like the, all the stuff has to be that good. Otherwise no one will know. Um, yeah. And so I don't have like a answer about how we thought about it other than like, we really tried to just it's like the thing I was saying earlier about game design, right? Like we tried to think about it from the other side yeah. we failed it. We failed in that way a lot of times like i think when we first announced the game nobody knew what the, what it was like we we did a bad job initially at explaining 
what the game is, and we eventually kind of just like workshopped how we talked about it enough to get to the point where like you know maybe by halfway through development i think we had a good like couple sentences that we could use to like explain what it was because it is kind of an unusual game like one of the weird things about um trying to make story-based games now is that there isn't a bet there isn't a set of best practices yet for games that want to tell a story but don't have combat or puzzles in them Mm -hmm. um that's why people came up with the term walking simulator is basically to like try and come up with a name for a genre because we, there isn't a name for that genre. Yeah. Uh, there just like, isn't a design, like a default design for that yet. Um, like if you look at our game versus gone home versus everybody's gone to the rapture versus, um, even something like amnesia, uh, amnesia, eh, amnesia doesn't really have combat. Like, you know, there's all these games that are just like, you're basically just in a world trying to figure out a story. What do you actually do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I think a lot of people assume these games don't have game design in them, but they have a ton of game design in them. It's just kind of, it's op, it's just not operating with like combat sequences and puzzles and things that people generally like when they think about game design, if they're not actually game designers, but they think about game design, it's like, Oh, it's though you're like deciding how that stuff works. And that's yeah. a hugely important part of game design. But there's also all this other stuff that's just like, how do you interact with the world and like yeah, how right. is inform- information presented and like how does the dialogue flow and what order do you find things in and like can you double back and if so like how does that work and like this, uh, how do you keep the player from getting lost and how does the map work and like all these bajillions of things um and we just didn't know a lot of that stuff was early on which meant that we didn't know how to explain it to people early on and so that was right. a big that was a big marketing challenge for sure yeah um yeah, my only gripe with the game is it was missing AK forty seven. Yeah, yeah, we couldn't, we, we couldn't agree on which guns to put in it, so we had to leave them all out. Yeah, I, I would have been happy with a knife. I got hit over the head with a rock. I was like, "What? I'm just going to let him do that to me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you get an axe eventually, but sorry, yeah, it's too late. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, no spoilers, no spoilers. Uh, There's probably you know your game's only actually been on sale for like like a month and a week or so, like right, like something like that. Um, it's been about two months now. Two months? Okay. So yeah. there's probably still a good amount of people who haven't played it. And oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. There's yeah, yeah. an infinite number of people. Yeah, no. who not <laughs> but I mean, you know what I mean? Like of your of your demographic. Of, of the, our potential exactly, future audience. Exactly. Your direct sales audience. Still not played it. Yeah, yeah, you haven't reached that saturation point yet in a month and a half. So yeah, I'm not going to ruin it. But I will say I had a great time uh, playing oh, through the Thank experience. You. Yes. Uh, I felt like I was in a Pixar movie. You know, like a very serious. Because oh, yeah. I, I just love the art and animation. Like it was oh, really yeah. cool. No, our animator James is like he's an amazing animator. Yeah. James Benson. He's he was the animator on Ori in the Blind Forest. Okay. If you guys have played that, yeah. Which is a totally beautiful, just like gorgeous, gorgeous game. Um, he did the animation for that. So well, yeah, James is my kudos, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kudos to the whole team. Man. I mean, you, oh, you guys keep uh, Chris sitting here saying. He did an okay job, but like everything was so top notch. It was good. It was good. It really thanks. was good. Uh, thanks, guys. It's inspiring. So, um, we have a gift for you, by the way. Yeah, yeah, you didn't know. So, what we do on this I podcast know. is uh, whenever we have a guest and we interview them for like an hour, sometimes even more, and in your case, more than an hour, right? Like, we don't want to just take from Sorry, you. I go, I go on too long. No, no, no. <laughs> this, this is good. This is awesome. What we do is we shut up. 
and we give you an opportunity to speak directly to our audience, both Twitch and to the podcast, to basically plug, promote, or to talk about anything that you want specifically. So this is our thank you to you. You know, we let you have our audience and tell them whatever you'd like. You can lie to them if you like. It's up to them to believe it or not. But yeah, uh, so the floor is yours if you have anything to plug, promote, or share, or just to be excited about. Um, well, I mean, you know, we released our game Firewatch, so if you don't know what that is, go to firewatchgame.com and check it out. Um, you know, and then the other thing I talked about a lot on this podcast that I'm, I would love to point people to is uh, Idle Thumbs, which is our podcast and podcast network. Um, mm-hmm. So we have uh, idlethumbs.net. Uh, we have a lot of shows up on there now. And what's funny about it is that totally unintentionally, we've ended up becoming a repository for a ton of um, video game developer interviews. Mm. So, you know, if you like this podcast, um, you might like other uh, podcasts with game developer interviews. And we now have like three different series of game developer shows, uh, game developer interview shows on our network. We have uh, Tone Control, which was uh, hosted by Steve Gaynor, and he interviewed all kinds of interesting people. Uh, designer Notes, which is still running, hosted by Soren Johnson, the designer of Civilization IV. Uh, he interviews, uh, he and Adam Saltzman, actually the designer of Cannibal and various other games sort of trade off doing game developer interviews every month. And, uh, currently our most recent interview show is Playscape LA, which is hosted by Teddy Deef, one of the, um, one of the developers of Hyperlight Drifter. Right. And he's doing this really interesting concept, which is he's all of his interviews are with people from the Los Angeles game scene. Mm. Um, so it's like kind of a, it's a limited series. It'll end, you know, at a certain point, but the idea is like, you know, he's going to do a dozen of these shows or whatever. I don't know how many, and they're going to in aggregate paint a picture of this like specific local scene, which I think is really 90% of all game developers in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. There's so many, there's so many. Um, and so, yeah, we have a bunch of shows and then our flagship show, idle thumbs, which is the one that I, uh, I host or co-host that is there's three of us currently um we just talk about video games every week and talk about bullshit and just kind of <laughs> I don't know I don't know what I don't know how even how to describe it but it's uh we've been doing it that's the one I was talking about earlier and we've been doing mm-hmm. it for you know eight years now um and I actually uh also on that site if we're just plugging stuff I'll promise I'll wrap it up after this no, but, go ahead. Uh, we um we relaunched a podcast that we used to do called the idle book club uh, which is a monthly podcast where we read a book about we read a, a work of fiction or a book, a novel, and uh, and talk about it. So we announce each one a month in advance, nice. and then we you know everyone reads it, and then we talk about it on the podcast the next month. And I I restarted that actually with my wife now um, because we figured okay, well this is a way that um, can be sustainable because we can actually just record it at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we did we launched that podcast years ago with just the same ones of us who do the regular podcast. And uh, eventually it was just like one more responsibility that we created for ourselves. Right. Uh, And so this time I figured, well, if I record it with the person I live with, uh, (laughs) it's just like free. It's basically free. (laughs) Um, So if you like fiction, we do that too. Anyway, those are all, those are all at idlethumbs.net. So. All right. Yeah, go check it out, guys. Well, uh, you know what? I'm notorious for doing this. I'm grabbing the mic since I'm talking first. Larry Charles, thank you very much. It's great to see you. Great to have you on the show. Good night. This is Brandon Pam. See you guys. Thanks, guys. Game Prototype, a horror game. 
we're opening up spring registration for our course. Perfect for a total beginner to make your own game prototype in Unreal 4. Within the We Make course, you can choose from three disciplines. Design 3D art or UI, UX artists. Even learn all three at no extra cost. In addition, you'll have a game industry professional meeting with you every week to guide you through the weekly assignments. If you're interested, you can pre-register for the course anytime before class starts. Online, May 16, 2016. We are taking in a limited amount of students to keep the learning experience intimate and personal. Email brandonfam at gameschoolonline.com for more info.